Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Thank you. Thank you very much, Deacon. It is, a, it is a pleasure to be here. I love very much the topic we're going to look at here together. Let me tell you what I intend to do. We have two days together. We have uh, this week and then next week, same time and same place. My basic goal is in, this, in these two lectures to give you an overview of some of the basic principles of moral philosophy or ethics, an overview of some of those basic principles. And I'd like to also make some connections between it and Christianity and show how very well these principles fit in with Catholic moral theology, fit in with our faith. And I also always like to throw in some practical suggestions. So the practical suggestions will primarily be next week, um, and, and this week will be some more basic principles uh, that I think you'll appreciate. I'd like to start with a, just a little verse from Scripture here that struck me. As I propose, and as we go on today, I think you'll see a little bit more why. Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55. Morning after morning, the Lord God opens my ear that I may hear. And I have not rebelled, have not turned my back. Morning after morning, the Lord God opens my ear that I may hear. And I have not rebelled, have not turned my back. I'd like to start this morning with the notion of measuring. This is a somewhat technical term. St. Thomas likes to use the term measure. And so I'd like to talk to you a little bit about it. And in terms of this term, measure, look at the moral life. To measure is to give form or to give order to something. To measure is to give form or order to something. As rational creatures, ladies and gentlemen, we give order to many things. We measure many different things. And especially, we measure our own actions. You can say we measure our own life. The great question of ethics is this. Is there an objective order that we should be using in our measuring? Is there an objective order that we should be giving to our actions, that we should be giving to our life? Again, man is always a measurer. I'd put it to you this way. The question is, are we a measured measurer? Is there something that is prior to us? Is there something that is given that should measure us in how we measure? 
It's beyond question that we are measurers. We are determining how we will live. But what order are we using in giving measure to our actions? St. Thomas Aquinas has a very helpful uh, distinction for us on this, and I just realized I didn't get a copy of my own handout. Um, thank you, Bob. And does, does anyone else, I got it, does, it, if anyone else needs a handout, uh, maybe you could raise your hand and, and Mr. Blankenship could, could bring that to you. Um, by the way, I forgot to wish you a happy feast of St. Francis de Sales. What, a, what an absolute delight to be here speaking on uh, ethics in the good life on the feast of such a great, great patron. I, I opened my handout here with a quotation from one of my favorite books, Introduction to the Devout Life. We'll come back around to see how apropos this is, but I wanted to put it first there. St. Francis de Sales, wherever we may be, we can and should aspire to a perfect life. The next little section there is, it's actually my paraphrase, but it's basically a quotation from St. Thomas Aquinas' prologue to his commentary on Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics. That was, a, that was a big mouthful. Aristotle is going to be our main guide, ladies and gentlemen, through ethics or moral philosophy. He was St. Thomas's main philosophical guide. Aristotle's main work is called the Nicomachean Ethics. St. Thomas wrote a commentary on it. What this quotation here is from is from the very beginning, the, the first thing St. Thomas does when he wants to do this treatise on presenting the moral philosophy of ethic of Aristotle, what he does is he lays out this fascinating distinction, speaking in terms of order. There are four ways that order relates to reason. I know it's kind of a technical term, I'm going to you to bear with it, and I think you'll see how it's being used here. Or really, there's four kinds of order distinguished by how they relate to human reason. So look at this little list of four here with me. An order that reason beholds or discovers, but does not establish. This is the order given in nature. And St. Thomas very intentionally puts this first. There is an order that reason, our reason, can discover out there, that we behold. We don't establish it. We see it. We discover it. Second, in order that reason establishes in its own thoughts. Third, in order that reason establishes in the acts of the will, or more broadly, the reason establishes in human actions. And then fourthly, in order that reason establishes in the exterior, exterior material world. So note a couple things to see about this list here. The first thing to see is the priority of the first one. We have this fundamental distinction between orders that reason is in the business of giving or establishing, where reason is measuring things. Look quickly at that, at that list. We have reason is able to measure our own thoughts. He says there's a science of doing this. The science of doing that well is called logic. Logic is where you study how to order your own thoughts well. Then there is an order that reason doesn't put into its thoughts, but puts into, broadly, our actions as human beings, our voluntary actions. 
those actions are most characteristic of us as humans, reason puts in order into them. And he names a science that studies this. The science that studies that is called ethics or moral philosophy. Moral philosophy, very simply said, is the science that considers what order should reason be putting into human actions. That's what ethics or moral philosophy is. And then, the, and then the fourth, this order that reason establishes in the exterior world, that is what he says art deals with. Arts or the know-how, this mechanical arts, this fine arts, the know-how, how to make a painting, how to build a ship, how to build a house. Here we are putting order into stuff. When you arrange a garden, you are using reason to put an order into something. So there's all kinds of ways that we use reason to put order into the stuff around us. So there's a whole set of studies that are about that. Our focus here is on number three. It tells us what moral philosophy is, but again, I want to go back to note this key distinction between the first of the four and then two, three, and four. The first one, he says, there is an order that, first of all, we discover that human reason itself does not establish. And that is the basis for all of the other three. Ladies and gentlemen, this gives us a basis for, for considering a whole number of things. But just consider this. At stake here is the fundamental question, the fundamental question, again, of moral philosophy. Do we ourselves decide what the order is that our actions should have, or do we not? This is interestingly connected to art. It's just a sidebar for you. Anyone who's interested in the realm of fine arts, have you noticed in modern times how there's been a shift in modern art, where in general the approach to, to art now is that it's all about human creativity. The artist simply decides what he's going to do, and according simply to his own creativity, he makes whatever, whatever it is he's going to make. Whereas in the traditional view, an artist was always one who first looked he first beheld something in the natural world and rooted in that insight into an order in the natural world. That would be the foundation for then his proceeding in being creative in what he then would make. Well, in a parallel way, St. Thomas would have us see, and in an even more important way. There is in order that we can discover that can be called the moral order, the natural given moral order. Now, right now, ladies and gentlemen, I am not going to give an argument that there is such an order. We can only do so much, but right now I'm just going to assert to you there is such an order. And let me, let me just explain a little bit about how the word order is being used here, because I know sometimes a, a teacher can keep using a, a word again and again, and we can, it, it's, it can be confusing. What exactly is being referred to here? 
There's different kinds of orders out there. The most important kind of order I'll refer to is an order of hierarchy. Hierarchy, ladies and gentlemen, is an order. We can naturally see that some goods are higher than others. Some things in life are more important than others. This is an order. This is an order, again, I'm asserting here without giving a full defense, is something that is given that we didn't decide upon. For instance, in a family, the relationship that I have with my wife is much more important than the relationship that I have with domestic animals. They're actually both important, but there is an order between them. One is higher than the other. There's all kinds of things where we would say this is better or this is more important than that. And that is just a given hierarchy. So that is one way of seeing what we mean by order. Another way that the term order can be used is a kind of order of causality. This is the cause of this. Planting comes before and is a kind of cause of harvesting. Education is a cause of, it comes before, the wisdom that flows from it. So that these key orders that we see, that again, they're just given. We did not make it up. We see that there is that order of causality. If this is going to come to be, then this needs to have been first. So those two kinds of orders, just an order of hierarchy, an order of this is what's necessary in order for there to be this, is the type of order that we discover that is the basis for our talking about there being a moral order in our life. You might wonder right now, isn't that completely obvious? Here you are saying to us, that this is the big question. It all depends on how you answer this question. Is there a moral order that we discover, that we need to follow, or do we able, are we able to say that we just make it up ourselves? Who could possibly assert that we just make it up ourselves, that there's not an order that we must discover and then conform ourselves to? Well, ladies and gentlemen, I'm gonna throw this at you. Let me be blunt. Seven times a day, I suggest, everybody in this room acts as though there is no moral order to be discovered, but that rather we are simply the measurers. Every time that you or I sin, very simply, we are saying, there is not an order that I must conform myself to. I'll say how things need to be done. Are we not saying that every time we sin? We're saying, I am in charge. I will determine what is most important here. I will determine what is fitting to be done. So I suggest, ladies and gentlemen, when we find ourselves wondering, and maybe in our better moments we would, say, how can we ever deny 
that there's a given moral order that should norm us to which we need to conform ourselves. Let us always remind ourselves there is always a very powerful force at work in us and in all those around us that will tend to move us to deny, at least in practice, if not in theory, the point that we've just made. And what is that force? Our bad desires. Because we want to do things that are contrary to that moral order. And now our bad desires move us to, again, at least in practice, if not in theory, say, no, there is not an order I must conform myself to. And so we don't listen. And we turn our backs on an order that has been given to us, for us, for our own sake. Let's turn now and I want to look at what is called the end of man. The end of man. Why are we going to turn and look at the end of man? Because in the order that we discover that is given in the natural world, that is given in human life, there is something that is first. In any order, something is always first. And what is first is what is foundational. In Aristotle's view, and again we're particularly going to follow St. Thomas in taking Aristotle as kind of our guide here, in the moral order that we need to discover, that we need to develop the eyes to see, and then the will to put into action, there is something that is first. And what is first is what's called the end. So, take you into a little bit of Aristotelian natural philosophy here, just to talk very briefly about what is meant by the end. When Aristotle looks at the natural world, everything that exists by nature, trees, birds, you and I, we exist by nature. We are naturally inclined towards a fulfillment. We are inclined to, towards some perfection, some fulfillment, you can say, of our very being, towards a way of being that is a full actualization of our own existence, a full actualization of the potentialities that we have by nature. This end is that perfection. It is that full actualization of what we can and should be. And this end, interestingly, when we, the more we grasp it, the more we see, it literally is what explains our very existence. You don't really understand what a tree is unless you understand what the full flourishing, the, we'll use the word perfection, of a tree is. Let me use an example from, from an artifact. The ends of a piano is making beautiful music. Not every piano, as it were, achieves its ends, but you don't really understand a piano unless you understand what it's for unless you understand the beautiful music that it is all about making. And everything in what a piano is ultimately is only understood in view of the beautiful music that a piano is for. Well, the same thing then can be said about things that exist by nature. Again, birdies, men, 
trees. There is some full state of actualization, which you could say is the perfection. Perfection from the Latin just means made all the way through. When you see that state of the being made all the way through, of being perfect, then we understand what this kind of thing most of all is and what it's all about. I'm going to pause and just make a side note to you here. I like to use an artifact because an, as an example. Artifact just means something that we've made, something made by man. A piano is an artifact. We see there very much what we call teleology. Teleology means the whole realm of something having an end. We see pianos we design and we make for a particular end. It's very clear to see how there is that end there. But, but we have to be tricky when we use, pardon me, we have to be careful because it can be tricky when you use an artifact as an example. The ends of artifacts of things that we make, tools and such, we give those things their end. A piano has the end that it does because we have given it that end. Natural things are like artifacts in this way. They have an end. They have something that explains most of all what they are. But what is the key, especially given our topic here, what is the key difference between them? We don't give the end to things that exist by nature. Right? The, the end of natural things is just given. And if we are going to see it, we have to be willing to just discover it and humbly be formed by what is there. Just as a, as a side note, I, it's, it's my own opinion that a danger of spending too much time immersed in human artifacts and technology, I'm just going to say that again, I, I bleeped out there for a moment, the danger of being, spending too much time around artifacts and technology is to get the impression that we give ends to everything, right? Artifacts are very much the fruit of our own rationality. There's something about natural things always stand before us, not, not, not as a negative challenge, but as a positive challenge. A tree, a bird, a plant, the sun. In a sense, it stands before us and says, I am what I am prior to you. I think if we have eyes to see, we'll see they are given to us in what they are, but they're not given to us to determine what they are. It's given to us to, di to discover what they are. And it's the exact same thing about who we are and how we should live and the moral order. So the tradition has always seen there's a very healthy connection between good contact with the natural world and being immersed in the type of things that are always a reminder to us of there's form, there's order, there's limit, there's ends that are all given to us that when we discover and conform ourselves to, we recognize them as the gifts that they are. Ladies and gentlemen, what is the end of man? Well. 
I, I'm, I'm going again, the, the positive and the minus of, of doing ethics in two days together. <laughs> the excitement of, we keep bouncing along and getting lots of, lots of, lots of good stuff at the same time, a bit of it can't have an, a, a full explanation. And I always want to warn you, we, we, we're, we're able to just start to see, we can start to see, and there are avenues that we can pursue more. I'm going to use, introduce a key word right here. When Aristotle asked, what is the end of man? What would be the best way of conceptualizing, or expressing what that full state is, that kind of perfection, that thing that man's life is clearly all about? He uses the word virtue. The end of man is in living virtuously. Ladies and gentlemen, there is an awful lot packed into that phrase. And I'm not even going to try to unpack it at all this week. One of the things next week is we're going to look a little closer at kinds of virtue, how you develop virtue, because that's absolutely central in our looking at ethics, though I'm going to stick with the main themes here today and not, and not go any further than that. But I just want to mention here, what, what, what do, have we just asserted? It's an incredibly beautiful point. Aristotle is saying, you do not understand who you are unless you understand that you are most you when you are shockingly virtuous. That's what your own end, fulfillment, completion is. And you are not you unless and until you are living virtuously, and I think with all that that implies, and that everything in human life must ultimately be understood with reference to that. Is having children a good thing? Indeed it is. Is raising them in a certain kind of way a good thing? Is having a certain kind of home a good thing? All those things are most understood as the good things that they are when we see them in view of. They are all about bringing persons to where they can be living in this amazing way called virtuous. I'll leave it there as regards the end. Go on and look at a couple other fundamental principles with you. Human acts are voluntary. This is one of my favorites. It sounds about as boring as it could possibly be. Okay, now we're going to start to talk about how human acts are voluntary. Well, um, let's connect this back to what we've been looking at. There's an order of action, ladies and gentlemen, in the life of a black bear. There is an order in the life of a black bear. But there's no such thing as moral philosophy of how black bears should live. We've said that moral philosophy is about the order that needs to be put into how human beings live. Well, there's an order of how black bears live. Why is there absolutely no moral philosophy of that? There is a study. You can study the order that is in black bear's life. 
But the reason that there is no moral philosophy of Black Bear's life and there is a moral philosophy of our life is because our actions are voluntary. And ladies and gentlemen, what is the heart of the meaning of that term? The heart of it is your actions are yours. And my actions are mine on a level that absolutely transcends anything that goes on in a black bear or a tree. My actions are mine. And you know how Aristotle expressed this? Very simply, by pointing out this beautiful point. Consider, you don't really praise the actions of a black bear. You wouldn't really blame the actions of a black bear. If you've ever been camping, you might have, you might, you might have, you might have problems with a bear. You consider you wake up in the morning and you come out and, and despite your best efforts, the, the, the food is gone. And then you see way up on the hill there, you see a black bear sitting. And you might, what might you, you might kind of shake your fist and say, golly. But ladies and gentlemen, are we going to blame the black bear? If you could sit the black bear down, would you say, shame on you? <laughs> shame on you. Right? Think about that for a moment. But with a human being, you can look a human being in the eye at times as appropriate and say, shame on you. Of course, the amazingly beautiful thing. On the flip side, if, it, if an animal does something well, and I know that you know, the amazing thing about you know, the higher animals, as one great early philosopher said, the higher animals, they start to in certain ways be like human beings, still with the great infinite abyss. So I'm about to say, you're not gonna praise an animal. And right now, well, I do praise my dog. You do. Dogs are, you know, they're rather amazing. They really are. But at the end of the day, do you really praise a dog as though it's really something he can take credit for? Whereas it isn't one of the most amazingly beautiful things in life when you can look at a human being and say, well done. This is yours, and I praise you for it. Aristotle had this amazing insight where he, he realized our actions are ours, and we will render an account for them. Are they good? Or are they bad? It, it, it's a drama unlike any other drama. Do they have the order in them that we could have seen, maybe we did see, and did we put it there? If we did, that's to our praise because we did it. And if we don't, 
Someone, this one you don't even have to invoke God, it's just obvious, someone, in a sense anyone, could look at us and say, what hast thou done? You've not done this? That's wrong, because you should have. So this is the drama of the voluntary. There's no science like moral philosophy. It's about what should be, dare I say, what must be, but won't necessarily be, because will we hear or will we turn our back on an order that's right there, it's being given, and it is for us but it is in our power as to whether we see it and make it our own. For our actions are ours. I'd like to move towards wrapping up by introducing to you a final notion that I think will tie together a number of things that we've already looked at here, and that's the notion of being a steward. To introduce the notion of a steward, I'm going to introduce two other notions that I think are rather common, and they, will, and they will make clear for us how we can use the notion of steward to capture some fundamental points about the moral life. And then I'm going to conclude. A master, a master is one who gives orders. A master is one who gives order to things. He gives direction. A servant is one who receives orders or receives direction from another. Fundamental distinction that is clear to everyone. Master, one who gives orders. Servant, one who receives orders, follows them. What is a steward? A steward, I present for your consideration, might be best seen as an amazing little combination of those other two, but it's a very specific kind of combination. It's not just a mixture. It's this kind of combination. A steward is, first of all, a servant, but he serves by being a kind of master. A steward, again, is first of all, and that's critical, he's first of all a servant, but he serves precisely by being a kind of master. I'd like to apply this to, to the moral realm. The human person, every human person in the moral realm, we can say, should be a steward. The human person, first of all, discovers an order that is given to him. And in this way, we find ourselves in the position of a servant, broadly speaking. It doesn't have to even imply, doesn't have to imply that there's a person that you're serving. But there's this aspect of we receive an order that clearly is not our own. In that sense, we are a servant. There's an order that's been given to us that we need to receive. But then, we, especially unlike the black bear or the blackberry, we 
in receiving that order, we receive it in such a way that we are called. It is given to us to turn around and to be a kind of master. We are the, the Latin word for master is dominus. St. Thomas likes to refer to how man has dominion over his actions. This comes back again to what we were just looking at. Of, we are voluntary agents. As voluntary agents, we are a kind of master. Isn't it interesting? At the end of the day, you hold a master responsible for he had dominion over what he did. So humans, we are in this amazing situation. We absolutely experience ourselves as having dominion. To go back to my fundamental drama of the day, we experience ourselves as measurers. We experience ourselves as someone who can determine things, determine how things are going to go. We are rational agents. This is central to our experience of ourselves. Indeed, we are masters in a very important way of our own life. But isn't it interesting? Herein is the drama. We are masters precisely because we are rational, but in our very rationality, the natural world, our own being, has been given to us, and it all comes with an order that is obvious and evident that we can naturally see. And we can naturally see that this is given to me for me and for mine. And obviously, it is my place to take that order and to make it my own and to act then like a master. So let me wrap up then by giving a little overview of what we've seen in close. Man is a rational agent. As rational, we can give order to many things. The thing particularly that we're focusing on today is the main area we are called upon to give order, namely our voluntary actions, our moral life. Big issue. What order will I give? I am free. I can take, ladies and gentlemen, as the standard of how I act, what I feel like doing. I can give the order of what do I want to do? How often do all of us do that? That's a kind of, there's an order to what I want. There's a primordial temptation of man going all the way back to the beginning. This is a way that you can see what the original sin was. Adam and Eve said, we will do as we want. So I am free in what order I will actually put into my actions or not. And I might use the standard of my own dearest desires. Or I might humbly receive. I might humbly listen and accept in order that has been given? And that's a great question. Who then is the faithful and wise servant? 
whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. Ladies and gentlemen, we might end with that question. Who is that faithful and that wise servant? The one who sees ultimately that the given moral order is a gift for our own happiness. Just to give you a little hint as to what's going to come next week, here's part of the amazing beauty of the whole situation. I have not introduced any principles to show how the moral life is not just an individual drama. Come to find out, there's much more in this drama than just, am I responding? There's the whole realm of friendship, relationship, family, all that I owe, all that I need from those around me. And so the beautiful, beautiful aspect at the end of the day, the order that's been given to me to receive and be a steward of, not only requires that I give a certain order to my own actions, it will also demand of us that we give a certain order to the actions of those around us. Imagine the gifts. Not only am I a steward for myself, but according to vocation, we are stewards for our loved ones too. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you. Doctor, would you please relate your remarks today to the ends and actions of groups such as legislative bodies? Uh, that, that's, a, that's a great question. It's a very, it's a very big question. Um, so I'm going to just take this, I'm going to take the angle, uh, legislative bodies. St. Thomas is the master of the philosophy of law. And he holds that all human law, which of course is the law, there's different kinds of law, there's divine law, but human law of course is what's made by human legislatures. Um, all human law must be rooted in the natural law. I haven't used the term natural law here today. Aristotle doesn't particularly use the term, but fundamentally the key to natural law is there is this given order, the moral order that can be discovered by all. It doesn't mean that all will see it the same way. But I'd say the key that we emphasize here today is that there is this given objective moral order. It is knowable through the causality of what St. Thomas would call the natural law. And then we can say the natural law must be the principle for all human law. All human law is, as all law, about bringing us to our end. So law is very teleological. We go back to talk about, we talked about the end of man, human happiness, the perfection that is the completion of who we are. All law should always be about bringing us ultimately 
closer to what our end is. So law is very much rooted in this whole issue of the order of us towards our end. So law that is not, that is contrary to the natural law, St. Thomas would say is not even law at all. But in any case, legislators should, oh, legislatures should be always looking towards, it's critical that they have some sense of what that natural order is. Now I know that's, that's a rather dramatic and scary point to make in our, present, um, in our present context. I'll leave you, by the way, as a teaser for next time when we're talking about friendship. St. Thomas also likes to say, law should bring us closer to friendship. Dr. J, thank you very much for a wonderful talk. <laughs> the, <laughs> the, I, so you did an excellent job explaining the, the kind of concept of, of servant and, and master. Another twist to that that, that I, I could use your help understanding or clarifying is the, the con, St. Louis de Montfort's concept of slave. So how does that kind of fit into the concept of servant and master? And that, that's, that, that, that's great. Um, here's the thing, I, I could take the easy way out and say, in, in Latin, actually, slave and servant are the same word. So I say that not to skirt the issue, but to actually to help. Now, in, in English, it is interesting that we have the term slave. I, I dare say we might want to do something like this. There's, there's different levels of being a servant. See, the steward is a kind of high servant. He is a servant but he also has that aspect of being a master. I would say it, one way of seeing what the word slave, one way in the case it could be used, is kind of the servant that is in no way having that higher aspect of being a master, but just kind of straight up slave is, is servant straight up. Now, so here's the thing. So how are we gonna use that with St. Louis de Montfort? I mean, I'd say there the notion of slave, this is my humble thought, quick thought on that, is really just trying to, to, to strongly emphasize it's all about the plan of the divine master. As a slave, I have nothing that is mine that isn't mine because he wants that. But I really think what, what St. Louis re really wants to emphasize is slave, the slave is totally about his master's will. But I, I, I want to close out by saying, but remember the good news, I, and, I, and I have confidence this is very much in accord with what St. Louis de Montfort would say, as being a slave of God, of the, of the Blessed Virgin Mary, you are in that slavery. You find the full identity of God does not treat you as a slave in the sense of someone who's not worthy being treated for his own sake. No, in being a slave to God, you come to your full completion where you too are a king. Just a, just a thought. Dr. Cuddlebeck, uh, for next week, could you possibly incorporate some contrary arguments by atheists in some of this? Because with dialogue with atheists, you know, the things you say are good, but then they'll come up with something that maybe I haven't thought about. So similar to what Aquinas did with his objections and the way he answered questions. Yeah, uh, um, I, I could just say yes. I, that is great. And, and I'll just give you this as a promissory note on them. Part of the thing that I'm gonna say um, nonetheless, is, is, is going to be challenging. This, is, no, this is, is not at all a sign of a lack of confidence in our own position. 
But one thing I try to convey to my students is just because people will not be convinced by what you say does not mean that what you're saying is not convincing. There will always be people. Sometimes my students will say, well, then they're just going to say this. And I say, yeah, they're going to say that, and they're going to say 50 other things, too. There's always something, that arguments that can be made where you, you, they can just keep, come back and keep rejecting things. This is in no way invalid. You have a great point Saint, in, in the spirit of St. Thomas. We do have to try to prepare, and I will do what I can to, to, to do that next week. Thanks for that question. A uh, question coming online from L in New York: um, Is our end is is our end the same as our fulfillment, or is it something else? She's asking. Can you please kind of elaborate more about what you mean by the word end? Yeah. Well, okay. Um, Greek word for end is 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 is, is telos. When we get we get the word teleology. Um, the, the end is a kind of completion. It is a fulfillment. Um, so I, would, I mean, the simple answer is, is, is yes. The, the great thing here, St. Thomas, when he talks about the end, he's able to take it to a new level because we actually find that supernaturally, um, in the, we find by divine revelation, we've been called to a supernatural end, a supernatural fulfillment, a supernatural perfection, a supernatural happiness that was not possible to us by nature, though it fulfills everything that our nature was designed for, and more. But another term that can be used, Aristotle's word for the end of man is eudaimonia, which is translated as happiness. Part of the problem is the, word, the, word, the way the term happiness is used has a very uh, subjective meaning, and it can tend to be associated with just a feeling. I'm feeling happy. But the, the end is a being fulfilled, a being complete, a being perfect, completely made through all that we could have and should have been. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.